Book One, Chapter Two of The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex C. Talander, Davis, California. The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H. G. Wills. Book One, Chapter Two The Experimental Farm. One. Mr. Bensington proposed originally to try this stuff, so soon as he was really able to prepare it, upon tadpoles. One always does try this sort of thing upon tadpoles to begin with, this being what tadpoles are for. And it was agreed that he should conduct the experiments and not Redwood, because Redwood's laboratory was occupied with the ballistic apparatus and animals necessary for an investigation into the diurnal variation in the budding frequency of the young bull calf, an investigation that was yielding curves of an abnormal and very perplexing sort. Now the presence of glass globules of tadpoles was extremely undesirable while this particular research was in progress. But when Mr. Bensington conveyed to his cousin Jane something of what he had in mind, she put a prompt veto upon the importation of any considerable number of tadpoles, or any such experimental creatures, into their flat. She had no objection whatever to his use of one of the rooms of the flat for the purposes of a non-explosive chemistry that, so far as she was concerned, came to nothing. She let him have a gas furnace and a sink and a dust-tight cupboard of refuge from the weekly storm of cleaning she would not forego, and having known people addicted to drink, she regarded his solicitude for distinction in learned societies as an excellent substitute for the coarser form of depravity. But any sort of living things in quantity, wriggling as they were, bound to be alive and smelly dead, she could not and would not abide. She said these things were certain to be unhealthy, and Bensington was notoriously a delicate man. It was nonsense to say he wasn't, and when Bensington tried to make the enormous importance of this possible discovery clear, he should have said that it was all very well, but if she consented to his making everything nasty and wholesome in the place, and that was what it all came to, then she was certain he would be the first to complain and Mr. Bensington went up and down the room, regardless of his corns, and spoke to her quite firmly and angrily, without the slightest effect. He said that nothing ought to stand in the way of the advancement of science, and she said the advancement of science was one thing, and having a lot of tadpoles in a flat was another. He said that in Germany it was an ascertained fact that a man with an idea like his would at once have twenty thousand properly fitted cubic feet of laboratory placed at his disposal, and she said she was glad, and always had been glad that she was not a German. He said that it would make him famous forever, and she said it was much more likely to make him ill to have a lot of tadpoles in a flat like theirs. He said he was master in his own house, and she said that rather than wait on a lot of tadpoles, she'd go as a matron to a school, and then he asked her to be reasonable, and she asked him to be reasonable then, and give up all this about tadpoles. And she said she might respect his ideas, and she said not if they were smelly she wouldn't, and then he gave way completely and said, in spite of the classical remarks of Huxley upon the subject, a bad word. Not a very bad word it was, but bad enough. And after that she was greatly offended, and had to be apologized to, and the prospect of ever trying the food of the gods upon tadpoles in their flat, at any rate, vanished completely in the apology. So Bensington had to consider some other way of carrying out these experiments in feeding that would be necessary to demonstrate his discovery, so soon as he had his substance isolated and prepared. For some days he meditated upon the possibility of boarding out his tadpoles with some trustworthy person, and then the chance sight of the phrase in a newspaper turned his thoughts to an experimental farm, and chicks. Directly he thought of it, he thought of it as a poultry farm. He was suddenly taken with a vision of wildly growing chicks. He conceived a picture of coops and runs, outsides and still more outsized coops, and runs progressively larger. 
chicks are so accessible, so easily fed and observed, so much drier to handle and measure, that for his purpose tadpoles seemed to him now, in comparison with them, quite wild and uncontrollable beasts. He was quite puzzled to understand why he had not thought of chicks instead of tadpoles from the beginning. Among other things, it would have saved all this trouble with his cousin Jane. And when he suggested this to Redwood, Redwood quite agreed with him. Redwood said in working so much upon needlessly small animals, he was convinced experimental physiologists made a great mistake. It is exactly like making experiments in chemistry with an insufficient quantity of material. Arabs of observation and manipulation become disproportionately large. It was of extreme importance just at present that scientific men should assert their right to have their material big. That was why he was doing his present series of experiments at the Bond Street College upon bull calves. In spite of a certain amount of inconvenience to the students and professors of other subjects caused by their incidental levity in the corridors but the curves he was getting were quite exceptionally interesting and would when published amply justify his choice for his own part were it not for the inadequate endowment of science in this country he would never if he could avoid it work on anything smaller than a whale but a public vivarium on a sufficient scale to render this possible was he feared a present in this country at any rate a utopian demand in Germany, etc. As Redwood's bull calves needed his daily attention, the selection and equipment of the experimental farm fell largely on Bensington. The entire cost also was, it was understood, to be defrayed by Bensington, at least until a grant could be obtained. Accordingly, he alternated his work in the laboratory of his flat with farm hunting up and down the lines that run southward out of London, and his peering spectacles, his simple baldness, and his lacerated cloth shoes filled the owners of numerous undesirable properties with vain hopes, and he had advertised in several daily newspapers and nature for a responsible couple, married, punctual, active, and used to poultry, to take entire charge of an experimental farm of three acres. He found the place he seemed in need of at Hickleybrow, near Urshot, in Kent. It was a little queer isolated place, in a dell surrounded by old pine woods that were black and forbidding at night. A humped shoulder of down cut it off from the sunset, and a gaunt well with a shattered penthouse dwarfed the dwelling. The little house was creeperless, several windows were broken, and the cart shed had a black shadow at midday. It was a mile and a half from the end house of the village, and its loneliness was very doubtfully relieved by an ambiguous family of echoes. The place impressed Bensington as being eminently adapted to the requirements of scientific research. He walked over the premises, sketching out coops and runs with a sweeping arm he found the kitchen capable of accommodating a series of incubators and foster mothers with a very minimum of alteration. He took the place there and then. On his way back to London he stopped at Dunton Green, and closed with an eligible couple that had answered his advertisements, and that same evening he succeeded in isolating a sufficient quantity of Heracleophorbia, one, to more than justify these engagements. The eligible couple who were destined under Mr. Bensington to be the first almoners on earth of the food of the gods were not very perceptibly aged, but also extremely dirty. This latter point Mr. Bensington did not observe, because nothing destroys the powers of general observation quite so much as a life of experimental science. They were named Skinner, Mr. and Mrs. Skinner, and Mr. Bensington interviewed them in a small room with hermetically sealed windows, a spotted overmantel looking-glass, and some ailing calceolarias. Mrs. Skinner was a very little old woman, capless, with dirty white hair drawn back very, very tightly from a face that had begun by being chiefly and was now, through the loss of teeth and chin and the wrinkling up of everything else, ending by being almost exclusively nose. She was dressed in slate color, so far as her dress had any color, slashed in one place with red flannel. 
She let him in and talked to him guardedly and peered at him round and over her nose, while Mrs. Skinner, she alleged, made some alteration in his toilet. She had one tooth that got into her articulations, and she held her two long wrinkled hands nervously together. She told Mr. Bensington that she had managed fowls for years, and knew all about incubators. In fact, they themselves had run a poultry farm at one time, and it had only failed at last through the want of pupils. It's the pupils as pay, said Mrs. Skinner. Mr. Skinner, when he appeared, was a large-faced man with a lisp and a squint that made him look over the top of your head, slashed slippers that appealed to Mr. Bensington's sympathies, and a manifold shortness of buttons. He held his coat and shirt together with one hand, and traced patterns on the black and gold tablecloth with the index finger of the other, while his disengaged eye watched Mr. Bensington's sword of Damocles, so to speak, with an expression of sad detachment. "'You don't want to run this farm for profit. No, sir. It's all the same, sir. Experiments precisely.' He said they could go to the farm at once. He was doing nothing at Dunton Green except a little tailoring. "'It isn't the smart place. I thought it was, and what I get I think thoroughly worth having,' he said. "'Though if it is any convenience to you for us to come.' And in a week Mr. and Mrs. Skinner were installed in the farm, and the jobbing carpenter from Hickley Brow was diversifying the task of erecting runs and hen-houses with a systematic discussion of Mr. Bensington. "'I haven't seen much of him yet said Mrs. Skinner, but as far as I can make him out, he seems to be a stupid old fool. I thought he seemed a bit dotty, said the carpenter from Hickleybrow. He fancies himself about poultry, said Mr. Skinner. Oh, my goodness, you'd think nobody knew nothing about poultry except him. He looks like an N, said the art carpenter from Hickleybrow. What with them spectacles of his? Mr. Skinner came closer to the carpenter from Hickleybrow, and spoke in a confidential manner and one sad eye regarded the distant village, and one was bright and wicked. Got to be measured every blessed day, every blessed in, he says. Though as thee, thee grow properly, what, oh, eh? Every blessed in, every blessed day. And Mrs. Skinner put up his hand to laugh behind it in a refined and contagious manner, and humped his shoulders very much, and only the other eye of him failed to participate in his laughter. Then, doubting if the carpenter had quite got the point of it, he repeated in a penetrating whisper, Measured! "'He's worse than our old governor. I'm dratted if he ain't,' said the carpenter from Hickleybrow. 2. Experimental work is the most tedious thing in the world, unless it be the reports of it in the philosophical transactions, and it seemed a long time to Mr. Bensington before his dream of enormous possibilities was replaced by a crumb of realization. He had taken the experimental farm in October, and it was May before the first inklings of success began. Heracleophobia one and two and three had to be tried and failed, there was trouble with the rats at the experimental farm, and there was trouble with the Skinners. The only way to get Skinner to do anything he was told to do was to dismiss him, that he would nib his unshaven chin, he was always unshaven, most miraculously, and yet never bearded, with a flattened hand, and look at Mr. Bensington with one eye, and over him with the other, and say, "'Ooh, of course, sir, if you're serious.' But at last success dawned, and its herald was a letter in the long, slender handwriting of Mr. Skinner. "'The new brood are out,' wrote Mr. Skinner, and don't quite like the look of them, growing very rank, quite unlike what the similar lot was before your last directions was given. The last before the cat got them was very nice, stocky chick, but these are growing like thistles. I never saw. They pick so hard, striking above boot-top, that I'm unable to give exact measures as requested. They are regular giants, and eating as such. We shall want more corn very soon, for you never saw such chicks eat, bigger than bantams. Going on at this rate, they ought to be a bird for show, rank as they are. Plymouth Rocks won't be in it. 
Had a scare last night, thinking that cat was at them, and when I looked out at the window, could have sworn I see her getting in under the wire. The chicks was all awake and picking about hungry when I went out, but could not see anything of the cat, so gave them a peck of corn and fastened up safe. Shall be glad to know if the feeding to be continued as directed. Fuji mix is pretty near all gone, and do not like to mix any more myself, on account of the accident with the pudding. With best wishes from us both, and soliciting continuance of esteemed favours, respectfully yours, Alfred Newton Skinner. The allusion towards the end referred to a milk pudding with which some Heracleophobia too had got itself mixed with painful and very nearly fatal results to the Skinners. But Mr. Bensington, reading the lion, saw in this rankness of growth the attainment of his long-sought goal. The next morning he alighted at Urtshot Station, and in the bag in his hand he carried, sealed in three tins, a supply of the food of the gods sufficient for all the chicks in Kent. It was a bright and beautiful morning late in May, and his corns were so much better that he resolved to walk through Hickley Brow to his farm. It was three miles and a half altogether, through the park and villages, and then along the green glades of the Hickley Brow preserves. The trees were all dusted with the green spangles of a high spring, the hedges were full of stitchwort and campion, and the woods of blue hyacinths and purple orchid, and everywhere there was a great noise of birds, thrushes, blackbirds, vorvins, finches, and many more, and in one warm corner of the park some bracken was unrolling, and there was a leaping and rushing of fallow deer. These things brought back to Mr. Bensington his early and forgotten delight in life. Before him the promise of his discovery proved bright and joyful, and it seemed to him that indeed he must have come upon the happiest day in his life. And when in the sunlit run by the sandy bank, under the shadow of the pine trees, he saw the chicks that had eaten the food he had mixed for them, gigantic and gawky, bigger already than many a hen that is married and settles and still growing, still in their first soft yellow plumage, just faintly marked with brown along the back, he knew indeed that his happiest day had come. At Mr. Skinner's urgency he went into the runs, but after he had been pecked through the cracks in his shoes, once or twice he got out again, and watched these monsters through the wire netting. He peered close to the netting, and followed their movements as though he had never seen a chick before in his life. "'What they'll be when they're grown up, it's impossible to think,' said Mr. Skinner. "'Big as a horse,' said Mr. Bensington. "'Pretty near,' said Mr. Skinner. "'Several people could dine off a wing,' said Mr. Bensington. "'They cut up into joints like butcher's meat.' "'They won't go on growing at this pace, though,' said Mr. Skinner. "'No,' said Mr. Benson. "'No,' said Mr. Skinner. "'I know this thought. "'They begin rank, but they don't go on, bless you, no.' There was a pause. "'It's management,' said Mr. Skinner, modestly. Mr. Benson turned his glasses on him suddenly. "'We got them almost as big as the other place,' said Mr. Skinner, with his better eye piously uplifted and letting himself go a little. "'Me and the missus.' Mr. Benson made his usual general inspection of the premises but he speedily returned to the new run. It was, you know, in truth, ever so much more than he had dared to expect. The course of science is so tortuous and so slow, after the clear promises and before the practical realization arrives, that comes almost always, year after year, of intricate contrivance, and here, here was the food of the gods, arriving after less than a year of testing. It seemed too good, too good. That hope deferred, which is the daily food of the scientific imagination, was to be his no more. So at least it seemed to him then, he came back and stared at these stupendous chicks of his, time after time. "'Let me see,' he said. "'They're ten days old, and by the sight of an ordinary chick I should fancy about six or seven times as big.' "'It's about time we asked for a rice in screw,' said Mr. Skinner to his wife. "'Either please of punts about the way we got those chickens on in the further run. Please of punts he is.' He bent confidentially towards her. "'Think it's that old food of his.' He said behind his hands and made a noise of suppressed laughter 
in his pharyngeal cavity. Mr. Bensington was indeed a happy man that day. He was in no mood to find fault with details of management. The bright day certainly brought out the accumulating slovenliness of the Skinner couple more vividly than he had ever seen it before. But his comments were of the gentlest. The fencing of many of the runs was out of order, but he seemed to consider it quite satisfactory when Mr. Skinner explained that it was a fox or a dog or something he did it. He pointed out that the incubator had not been cleaned. "'That ain't asn't, sir,' said Mrs. Skinner, with her arms folded, smiling coyly behind her nose. "'You don't seem to have had the time to clean it, not since we've been here.' He went upstairs to see some rat-holes that Mrs. Skinner said would justify a trap. They certainly were enormous, and discovered that the room in which the food of the gods was mixed, with meal and bran, was in quite a disgraceful order. The Skinners were the sort of people who find a use for cracked saucers, and old cans, and pickle jars, and mustard boxes, and the place was littered with these. In one corner a great pile of apples that Skinner had saved was decaying, and from a nail in the slopping part of the ceiling hung several rabbit-skins, upon which he proposed to test his gift as a furrier. "'There isn't much about furth and things that I don't know,' said Skinner. Mr. Bensington certainly sniffed critically at this disorder, but he made no unnecessary fuss, and even when he found a wasp regaling itself in a gallipot half full of Heracleophorbia four, he simply remarked mildly that his substance was better sealed from the damp than exposed to the air in that manner. And he turned from these things at once to remark what had been for some time in his mind. "'I think, Skinner, you know, I shall kill one of these chicks, as a specimen.' I think we will kill it this afternoon. I will take it back to London. He pretended to peer into another gallipot, and then took off his spectacles to wipe them. I should like, he said, I should like very much to have some relic, some memento, of this particular brood or this particular day. By the by, he said, you don't give those little chicks meat. Oh, no, sir, said Skinner. I can assure you, sir, we know far too much about the management of fowls, of all their description, to do anything of that sort. "'Quite sure you don't throw your dinner refuse. "'I thought I noticed the bones of a rabbit scattered around the far corner of the run. "'But when they came to look at them, they found that they were the larger bones of a cat picked very clean and dry. Three, "'That's no chick,' said Mr. Bensington's cousin Jane. "'Well, I should think I knew a chick when I saw it,' said Mr. Bensington's cousin Jane, hotly. "'It's too big for a chick, for one thing. "'And besides, you can see perfectly well it isn't a chick. "'It's more like a bustard than a chick.' "'For my part,' said Woodward, reluctantly allowing Bensington to drag him into the argument, "'I must confess that, considering all the evidence—' "'Oh, if you do that,' said Mr. Bensington's cousin Jane, "'instead of using your eyes like a sensible person.' "'Well, but really, Mrs. Bensington—' "'Oh, go on,' said cousin Jane. "'You men are all alike. "'Considering all the evidence, this certainly falls within the definition. "'No doubt it's abnormal and hypertrophied.' But still, especially since it was hatched from the egg of a normal hen, yes, I think, Miss Bensington, I must admit, this, so far as one can call anything, is sort of a chick. You mean it's a chick? said Cousin Jane. I think it's a chick, said Woodward. What nonsense! said Mr. Bensington's Cousin Jane, and, oh, directed at Redwood's head, I haven't patience with you, and then suddenly she turned about and went out of the room with a slam. And it's a very great relief to me to see it too, Bensington, said Redwood, when the reverberation of the slam had died away in spite of it being so big. Without any urgency even for Mr. Bensington, he sat down in the low armchair by the fire, and confessed to proceedings that even in an unscientific man would have been indiscreet. "'You will think it very rash of me, Bensington, I know,' he said. "'But the fact is I put a little, not very much of it, but some, into Baby's bottle very nearly a week ago.' "'But suppose,' cried Mr. Bensington. "'I know,' said Redwood, and glanced at the giant chick upon the plate on the table.' It turned out all right, thank goodness, and he felt in his pocket for his cigarettes. He gave fragmentary details. 
Poor little chap wasn't putting on weight. Desperately anxious. Winkles, a frightful duffer. Former pupil of mine. No good. Mrs. Redwood, a mitigated confidence in Winkles. You know, man with a manner like a cliff-towering. No confidence in me, of course. Taught Winkles. Scarcely allowed in the nursery. Something had to be done. Slipped in while the nurse was at breakfast. Got at the bottle. But he'll grow, said Mr. Benjamin. He's growing. Twenty-seven ounces last week. You should hear Winkles. It's management, he said. Dear me, that's what Skinner says. Redwood looked at the chick again. The bother is to keep it up, he said. They won't trust me in the nursery alone, because I tried to get a growth curve out of Georgina Phyllis, you know. And how am I to give him a second dose? Need you? He's been crying two days. Can't get on with his ordinary food again, anyhow. He wants some more now. Tell Winkles. Hang Winkles, said Redwood. You might get at Winkles and give him powders to give the child. That's about what I shall have to do, said Redwood, resting his chin on his fist and staring into the fire. Bensington stood for a space, smoothing the down on the breast of the giant chick. They will be monstrous fowls, he said. They will, said Redwood, still with his eyes on the glow. Big as horses, said Bensington. Bigger, said Redwood. That's just it. Bensington turned away from the specimen. Redwood, he said, these fowls go in to create a sensation. Redwood nodded his head at the fire. And by Joe, said Bensington, coming round suddenly with a flash in his spectacles, so will your little boy. That's just what I'm thinking of, said Redwood. He sat back, sighed, threw his unconsumed cigarette into the fire, and thrust his hands deep into his trousers' pockets. That's precisely what I'm thinking of. The heracleophorbia is going to be a queer stuff to handle. The pace that chick must have grown at. A little boy growing at that pace, said Mr. Bensington slowly, and stared at the chick as he spoke. I say, said Bensington, he'll be big. I shall give him diminishing doses, said Redwood. Only at any rate Winkles will. It's rather too much of an experiment. Much. Yet still, you know, I must confess, some baby will sooner or later have to try it. All were tried on some baby, certainly. Exactly so, said Bennington, and came and stood on the hearthrug, and took off his spectacles to wipe them. Until I saw these chicks, Redwood, I didn't think I began to realize anything of the possibilities of what we're making. It's only beginning to dawn upon me, the possible consequences. And even then, you know, Mr. Bensington was far from any conception of the mind that little train would fire. 4. That happened early in June. For some weeks, Bensington was kept from revisiting the experimental farm by a severe imaginary catter, and one necessary flying visit was made by Redwood. He returned an even more anxious-looking parent than he had gone. Altogether, there were seven weeks of steady, uninterrupted growth, and then the wasps began their career. It was late in July, and nearly a week before the hens escaped from Hickley Rout, that the first of the big wasps was killed. The report of it appeared in several papers, but I do not know whether the news reached Mr. Bensington, much less whether he connected it with the general laxity of method that prevailed in the experimental farm. There can be but little doubt now that while Mr. Skinner was plying Mr. Bensington's chicks with Heracleophobia four, a number of wasps were just as industriously, perhaps more industriously, carrying quantities of the same pace to their early summer broods in the sandbanks beyond the adjacent pine woods, and there can be no dispute whatever that these early broods found just as much growth and benefit in the substance as Mr. Bensington's hens. It is in the nature of the wasp to attain to effective maturity before the domestic fowl, and in fact of all the creatures that were, through the generous carelessness of the skinners, partaking of the benefits Mr. Bensington heaped upon his hens, the wasps were first to make any sort of figure in the world. It was a keeper named Godfrey, on the estate of Lieutenant Colonel Rupert Hick, near Maidstone, who encountered and had the luck to kill the first of these monsters of whom history has any record. He was walking knee-high in bracken across an open space in the beechwoods that diversified Lieutenant Colonel Hick's park, and he was carrying his gun. 
very fortunately for him, a double-barreled gun, over his shoulder when he first caught sight of the thing. It was, he says, coming down against the light, so that he could not see it very distinctly, and as it came it made a drone like a motor-car. He admits he was frightened. It was evidently as big or bigger than a bar now, and to his practiced eye its flight and particularly the misty whirl of its wings must have seemed weirdly unbird-like. The instinct of self-defense, I fancy, mingled with long habit, when, as he says, he let fly right away. The queerness of the experience probably affected his aim. At any rate, most of his shot missed, and the thing merely dropped for a moment with an angry whizz that revealed the wasp at once, and then rose again with all its stripes shining against the light. He says it turned on him. At any rate, he fired his second barrel at less than twenty yards, and threw down his gun, ran a pace or so, and ducked to avoid it. It flew, he is convinced, within a yard of him, struck the ground, rose again, came down again perhaps thirty yards away, and rolled over with its body wriggling and its sting stabbing out and back in its last agony. He emptied both barrels into it again before he ventured to go near. When he came to measure the thing, he found it was twenty-seven and a half inches across its open wings, and its sting was three inches long. The abdomen was blown clean off from its body, but he estimated the length of the creature from head to sting as eighteen inches, which is very nearly correct. Its compound eyes were the size of penny pieces. This is the first authenticated appearance of these giant wasps. The day after, a cyclist riding, feet up, down the hill between Sevenoaks and Tunbridge, very narrowly missed running over a second of these giants that was crawling across the roadway. His passage seemed to alarm it, and it rose with a noise like a sawmill. His bicycle jumped the footpath in the emotion of the moment, and when he could look back, the wasp was soaring above the woods towards Westerham. After riding unsteadily for a little time, he put on his brake, dismounted. He was trembling so violently that he fell over his machine in doing so, and sat down by the roadside to recover. He had intended to ride to Ashford, but he did not get beyond Tunbridge that day. After that, curiously enough, there is no record of any big wasps being seen for three days. I find on consulting the meteorological record of those days that they were overcast and chilly, with local showers, which may perhaps account for this intermission. Then on the fourth day came blue sky and brilliant sunshine, and such an outburst of wasps as the world had surely never seen before. How many big wasps came out that day it is impossible to guess. There are at least fifty accounts of their apparition. There was one victim, a grocer, who discovered one of these monsters in a sugar cask, and very rashly attacked it with a spade as it rose. He struck it to the ground for a moment, and it stung him through the boot as he struck it again, and cut its body in half. He was first dead of the two. The most dramatic of the fifty appearances was certainly that of the wasp that visited the British Museum about midday, dropping out of the blue serene upon one of the innumerable pigeons that feed in the courtyard of that building, and flying up to the cornice to devour its victim at leisure. After that it crawled for a time over the museum roof, entered the dome of the reading room by a skylight, buzzed down inside it for some little time. There was a stampede among the readers, and at last found another window and vanished again with a sudden silence from human observation. Most of the other reports were of mere passings, or descents. A picnic party was dispersed at Aldington Knoll, and all its sweets and jam consumed, and a puppy was killed and torn to pieces near Whitestable, under the very eyes of its mistress. The streets that evening resounded with a cry. The newspaper placards gave themselves up exclusively, in the biggest of letters, to the gigantic wasps in Kent. Agitated editors and assistant editors ran up and down tortuous staircases, bawling things about wasps and Professor Redwood, emerging from his college in Bond Street at five, flushed from a heated discussion with his committee about the price of bull-calves, bought an evening paper, opened it, changed color, forgot about bull-calves and committee forthwith, and took a handsome headlong for Bensington's flat. Five. 
The flat was occupied, it seemed to him, to the exclusion of all other sensible objects, by Mr. Skinner and his voice, if indeed you can call either him or it a sensible object. The voice was very high, slopping about among the notes of anguish. "'It's impossible for us to stop, sir. We stopped on hoping things would get better, and then only got worse. Sir, it isn't only the wasps. There's, there's bigger earwigs. There's big as, as there.' He indicated all his hand and about three inches of fat, dirty wrist. They pretty near gave Mrs. Skinner fifth, sir, and the thing is nestled by the run, sir. They're, they're growing, sir, and the canary creeper, sir, what we sowed near to think, sir. It put its tendril through the window in the night, sir, and very nearly caught Mrs. Skinner by the legs, sir. It's that fool of yours, sir. Whatever we've flattened about, sir, a bit it'll set everything growing ranker, sir, than I ever thought anything could grow. It's impossible to stop a month, sir. It's more than our lives are worth, sir. Even if wasps don't sing us, we shall be suffocated by the creeper, sir. You can't imagine, sir, unless you come down to see, sir. He turned his superior eye to the corners above Redwood's heads. As we know the wrath, haven't got it, sir, that, that what I think of must... "'Sir, I haven't seen any big rats, sir. "'But how do I know, sir? "'We have been threatened for days because of the earwigs we've seen, "'like lobsters they was, two of them, sir, "'and the frightful way the canary keeper was growing. "'And directly I heard the wasps, directly I heard them, sir, "'I understood. "'I didn't wait for nothing except to throw on a button and floors, "'and then I came on up. "'And now, sir, I'm off well with anxiety, sir. "'How do I know what happened to Mrs. Skinner, sir?' There's a creeper growing all over the place, like a snake, sir. Twelp me, but you have to watch it, sir, and jump out of this way, and the earwig getting bigger and bigger, and the wasps, she ain't got even a blue bag, sir, if anything would happen, sir. But the hens, said Mr. Bennington, how are the hens? We fed em up to yesterday, Twelp me, said Mr. Skinner, but this morning we didn't dare, sir. The noise of the wasps was something awful, sir. They was coming out done, and then, and... I says, I says, you throw up me on a button, and I'm too, and I says, for I go to London like this, I says, and I'll go up to Mr. Bensington, I says, and I a planning things to Jim, and you stop in this room till I come back to you, I says, and keep the windows shut, just as tight as ever you can, I says. If you haven't been so confoundedly untidy, began Redwood. Oh, don't say that, sir, says Skinner. Not now, sir, not with me so dread, sir. "'About Mrs. Sinker, sir. Oh, don't, sir. I haven't the odds uh, to argue with you. Throw me, sir. I haven't. It's the right I keep thinking of. How do I know they haven't got a Mrs. Skinner while I've been up here?' "'And you haven't got a solitary measurement of all these beautiful growth curves?' said Redwood. "'I've been too upset, sir,' said Mr. Skinner. "'If you knew what we've been through, me and the missus, all this last month—' We haven't known what to make of it, sir. What with the hens getting the rank, and the earwigs, and the canary creeper. I don't know if I told you, sir, the canary creeper. You've told us all that, sir, Redwood. The thing is, Bensington, what are we to do? What are we to do? said Mr. Skinner. You'll have to go back to Mrs. Skinner, said Redwood. You can't leave her there alone all night. Not alone, sir, I don't. Not if there was a dozen, Mrs. Skinner. It's Mr. Bensington. "'Nonsense,' said Wedwood. "'The wasps will be all right at night, and the weirwigs will get out of your way. "'But about the rats? There aren't any rats,' said Wedwood. Six. Mr. Skinner might have foregone his chief anxiety. Mrs. Skinner did not stop out her day. 
About eleven the canary creeper, which had been quietly active all the morning, began to clamber over the window and darken it very greatly, and the darker it got the more and more clearly Mrs. Skinner perceived that her position would speedily become untenable, and also that she had lived many ages since Skinner went. She peered out of the darkling window and through the lit stirring tendrils for some time, and then went very cautiously and opened the bedroom door and listened. Everything seemed quiet, and so, tucking her skirts high about her, Mrs. Skinner made a bolt for the bedroom, and having first looked under the bed and locked herself in, proceeded with the methodical rapidity of an experienced woman to pack for departure. The bed had not been made, and the room was littered with pieces of the creeper that Skinner had hacked off in order to close the window overnight, but these disorders she did not heed. She packed in a decent sheet, she packed all her own wardrobe and a velveteen jacket that Skinner wore in his finer moments, and she packed a jar of pickles that had not been opened, and so far she was justified in her packing. But she also packed two of the hermetically closed tins containing Heracleophorbia four that Mr. Bensington had brought on his last visit. She was honest, good woman, but she was a grandmother, and her heart had burned within her to see such good growth lavished on a lot of dratted chicks. And having packed all these things, she put on her bonnet, took off her apron, tied a new boot-lace round her umbrella, and after listening for a long time at door and window, opened the door and sallied out into a perilous world. The umbrella was under her arm, and she clutched the bundle with two gnarled and resolute hands. It was her best Sunday bonnet, and the two poppies that reared their heads amidst its splendors of band and bead seemed instinct with the same tremulous courage that possessed her. The features about the roots of her nose wrinkled with determination. She had had enough of it all. All alone there. Skinner might come back there if he liked. She went out by the front door, going that way not because she wanted to go to Hickleybrow. Her goal was cheesing Eyebright when her married daughter resided, but because the back door was impassable on account of the canary creeper that had been, growing so furiously ever since she upset the can of food near its roots. She listened for a space and closed the front door very carefully behind her. At the corner of the house she paused and reconnoitred. An extensively sandy scar upon the hillside beyond the pine woods marked the nest of the giant wasps, and this she studied very earnestly. The coming and going of the morning was over. Not a wasp chanced to be in sight then and except for a sound scarcely more perceptible than a steam wood saw at work amidst the pines would have been, everything was still. As for earwigs, she could see not one. Down among the cabbage, indeed, something was stirring, but it might just as probably be a cat stalking birds. She watched this for a time. She went a few paces past the corner, came inside of the run containing the giant chicks, and stopped again. Ah, she said, and shook her head slowly at the sight of them. They were at that time about the height of emus, but of course much thicker in the body, a larger thing altogether. There were all hens, and five all told, now that the two cockerels had killed each other. She hesitated at their drooping attitudes. Poor dear, she said, and put down her bundle. They've got no water, and they've had no food these twenty-four hours, and such appetites too as they have. She put a lean finger to her lips, and communed with herself. Then this dirty old woman did what seems to me a quite heroic deed of mercy. She left her bundle and umbrella in the middle of the brick path and went to the well, and drew no further, fewer than three pailfuls of water for the chicken's empty trough, and then while they were all crowding about that, she undid the door of the run very slowly, after which she became extremely active, resumed her package, got over the hedge at the bottom of the garden, crossed the rank meadows in order to avoid the wasp's nest, and toiled up the winding path towards Cheesing Eyebright. She panted up the hill, and as she went she paused ever and again to rest her bundle and get her breath and stare back at the little cottage beside the pinewood below. And when at last, when she was near the crest of the hill, she saw her far off three several wasps dropping heavily westward, it helped her greatly on her way. 
She soon got out of the open and in the high-banked lane beyond, which seemed a safer place to her, and so up by Hickley-Brow Combe to the downs. There at the foot of the downs, where a big tree gave an air of shelter, she rested for a space on a stile, then on again very resolutely. You figure her, I hope, with her white bundle, a sort of erect black ant, hurrying along the little white path thread athwart the downland slopes under the hot sun of the summer afternoon. On she struggled, after her resolute indefatigable nose, and the poppies in her bonnet quivered perpetually, and her springside boots grew whiter and whiter with the downland dust. Flip-flap, flip-flap went her footfalls through the still heat of the day, and persistently, incurably, her umbrella sought to slip from under the elbow that retained it. The mouth-wrinkle under her nose was pursed to an extreme resolution, and ever and again she told her umbrella to come up or gave her tightly-clutched bundle a vindictive jerk, and at times her lips mumbled with fragments of some foreseen argument between herself and Skinner. And far away, miles and miles away, a steeple on a hangar grew insensibly out of the vague blue to mark more and more distinctly the quiet corner where cheesing Eyebright, sheltered from the tumult of the world, wrecking little or nothing of the heracleophobia concealed in that white bundle that struggled so persistently towards its orderly retirement. 7. So far as I can gather, the pullets came in to Hickley-Rebrow about three o'clock in the afternoon. Their coming must have been a brisk affair, though nobody was out in the street to see it. The violent bellowing of the little Skelmersdale seems to have been the first announcement of anything out of the way. Miss Durgan of the post office was at the window as usual, and saw the hen that had caught the unhappy child, in violent flight up the street with its victim, closely pursued by two others. You know that swinging stride of the emancipated athletic latter-day pullet. You know the keen insistence of the hungry hen. There was Plymouth Rock in these birds, I am told, and even without heracleophobia that is a gaunt and striding strain. Probably Miss Durgan was altogether taken by surprise. In spite of Mr. Bensington's insistence upon secrecy, rumors of the great chicken Mr. Skinner was producing had been about the village for some weeks. "'Lor!' she cried. "'It's what I expected!' She seems to have behaved with great presence of mind. She snatched up the sealed bag of letters that was waiting to go on to Earshot, and rushed out of the door at once. Almost simultaneously, Mr. Skelmersdale himself appeared down the village, gripping a watering-pot by the spout, and very white in the face. And, of course, in a moment or so, every one in the village was rushing to the door or the window. The spectacle of Miss Durgan all across the road, with the entire day's correspondence of Hickley-Brow in her hand, gave pause to the pullet in possession of Master Skelmersdale. She halted through one instance's indecision, and then turned to the open gates of Fulker's yard. That instance was, was fatal. The second pullet ran in neatly, got possession of the child by a well-directed peck, and went over the wall into the vicarage garden. "'Chalk! Chalk! 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 Chalk!' cried the hindmost hen, hit smartly by the watering-can Mr. Skelmersdale had thrown, and fluttered wildly over Mrs. Glue's cottage, and so into the doctor's field, while the rest of those gargantuan birds pursued the pullet in possession of the child across the vicarage lawn. "'Good heavens!' cried the curate, or, as some say, something much more manly, and ran, whirling his croquet mallet, and shouting to head off the chase. "'Stop, you wretch!' cried the curate, as though giant hands were the commonest facts in life. And then, finding he could not possibly intercept her, he hurled his mallet with all his might and main, and out it shot in a gracious curve within a foot or so of Master Skelmersdale's head, and through the glass lantern the conservatory. Smash! The new conservatory! The vicar's wife's beautiful new conservatory!' It frightened the hen. It might have frightened any one. She dropped her victim into a Portugal laurel, from which he was presently extracted, disordered but, save for his less delicate garments, uninjured. 
made a flapping leap for the roof of Volker's stables, put her foot through a weak place in the tiles, and descended, so to speak, out of the infinite into the contemplative quiet of Mr. Bumps the paralytic, who, it is now proved beyond all cavil, did, on this one occasion in his life, get down the entire length of his garden and indoors, without any assistance whatever, bolt the door after him, and immediately relapse again into Christian resignation and helpless dependence upon his wife. The rest of the pullets were headed off by the other croquet players, and went through the vicar's kitchen garden into the doctor's field, to which rendezvous the fifth also came at last, clucking disconsolately, after an unsuccessful attempt to walk on the cucumber frames in Mrs. Mr. Witherspoon's place. They seemed to have stood about in a hen-like manner for a time, and scratched a little, and she rocked meditatively, and then one picked and pecked over a hive of the doctor's bees, and after that they set off in a gawky, jerky, feathery, fitful sort of way across the fields towards Urshot and Hickleybrow Street, saw them no more. Near Urshot they really came upon commensurate food in a field of Swedes, and pecked for a space with gusto until their fame overtook them. The chief immediate reaction of this astonishing eruption of gigantic poultry upon the human mind was to arouse an extraordinary passion to whoop and run and throw things, and in quite a little time almost all the available manhood of Hickley Rouse and several ladies were out with a remarkable assortment of flappish and wangable articles in hand, to commence the scooting of the giant hens. They drove them into Urshot, where there was a rural fete, and Urshot took them as the crowning glory of a happy day. They began to be shot at near Findom beaches, but at first only with a rook rifle. Of course, birds of that size could absorb an unlimited quantity of small shot without inconvenience. They scattered somewhere near Seven Oaks, and near Tunbridge one of them fled clucking for a time in excessive agitation, somewhat ahead of and parallel with the afternoon boat express, to the great astonishment of every one therein. At about half-past five, two of them were caught very cleverly by a circus proprietor at Tunbridge Wells, who lured them into a cage, rendered vacant through the death of a widowed dromedary by scattering cakes and bread. 8. When the unfortunate Skinner got out of the southeastern train at Urshot that evening, it was already nearly dusk. The train was late, but not inordinately late, and Mr. Skinner remarked as much to the station-master. Perhaps he saw a certain pregnancy in the station-master's eye. After the briefest hesitation, and with a confidential movement of his hand to the side of his mouth, he asked if anything had happened that day. "'How do you mean?' said the station-master, a man with a hard, emphatic voice. "'They're wasps and things.' "'We haven't had much time to think of wasps,' said the station-master agreeably. "'We've been too busy with your brasted ends,' and he spoke the news of the pullets to Mrs. Skinner, as one might break the window of an adverse politician. "'You ain't heard of anything of Mrs. Skinner?' said Skinner, amidst the missile shower of pithy information and comment. "'No fear,' said the station-master.' as though even he drew the line somewhere in the matter of knowledge. "'I must make inquiries about this,' said Skinner, edging out of the reach of the station-master's concluding generalizations about the responsibility attaching to ex the excessive nurture of hens. Going through Urshot, Mr. Skinner was hailed by a lime-burner from the pits over by Hanky, and asked if he was looking for his hens. "'You ain't heard anything of Mrs. Skinner?' he asked. The lime-burner, his exact phrases need not concern us, expressed his superior interest in hens. It was already dark, as dark at least as a clear night in the English June can be, when Skidder, or his head at any rate, came into the bar of the Jolly Drovers, and said, "'Hello, you haven't heard anything of this, uh, story about my hens, have you?' "'Oh, haven't we?' said Mr. Fulker. "'Why, part of the story's been and bust into my stable roof, and one chapter smashed a old in Mrs. Vicker's green house.' 
I beg your pardon, conservatory. Skinner came in. I'd like something a little comforting, he said. Oh, din and water about my finger. And everybody began to tell him things about the pullets. Gracious me, said Skinner. You haven't heard anything about Mrs. Skinner, have you? he asked in a pause. That we haven't, said Mr. Witherspoon. We haven't thought of her. We ain't thought nothing of either of you. Ain't you been home today? said Fulker over a tankard. If one of those brasted birds of Pecta, began Mr. Witherspoon's, and left the full horror of their unaided imaginations. It appeared to the meeting at the time that it would be an interesting end to an eventful day to go on with Skinner and see if anything had happened to Mrs. Skinner. One never knows what luck one may have when accidents are at large. But Skinner, standing at the bar and drinking his hot gin and water, with one eye roving over the things at the back of the bar, and the other fixed on the absolute, missed the psychological moment. I suppose there haven't been any trouble with any of this big waspists today, anywhere, he asked, with an elaborate detachment of manner. Been too busy with your ends, said Fulker. I suppose they've all gone in now, anyhow, said Skinner. What, the ends? I was thinking of the waspists, more particularly, said Skinner. And then, with an air of circumspection that would have awakened suspicion in a weak old baby, and laying the accent heavily on most of the words he chose, he asked, I suppose nobody hasn't heard of any other big things about, have they? Big dogs, or cats, or anything of that sort. Seems to me there's big ends and big wasses coming on. He laughed with a frank pretense of talking idly. But a brooding expression came upon the faces of the hickly brow men. Fulker was the first to give their condensing thought the concrete shape of words. A cat to match them ends, said Fulker. Aye, said Witherspoon, a catch to match their ends. Twould be a tiger, said Fulker. More than a tiger, said Witherspoon. When at last Skinner followed the lonely footpath over the swelling field that separated Hickley Brow from the sombre pine-shaded hollow in whose black shadows the gigantic canary creeper grappled silently with experimental form, he followed it alone. He was distinctly seen to rise against the skyline, against the warm, clear immensity of the northern sky, for so far public interest followed him, and to descend again into the night, into an obscurity from which it would seem he would never more emerge, he passed into a mystery. No one knows to this day what happened to him after he crossed the brow, when later on the two Fulkers and Witherspoon, moved by their own imaginations, came up the hill and stared after him. The flight had swallowed him altogether. The three men stood close. There was not a sound out of the wooded blackness that hid for the farm from their eyes. "'It's all right,' said young Fulker, ending a silence. "'Don't see any light,' said Witherspoon. "'You wouldn't from here.' "'It's misty,' said the elder Fulker. They meditated for a space. He'd have come back if anything was wrong, said young Fulker, and this seemed so obvious and conclusive that presently old Fulker said, Well, and the three went home to bed, thoughtfully, I will admit. A shepherd out by Huxter's farm heard a squealing in the night that he thought was foxes, and in the morning one of his lambs had been killed, dragged halfway towards Hickley Brow and partially devoured. The inexplicable part of it all is the absence of any disputable remains of Skinner. Many weeks after, amidst the charred ruins of the experimental farm, there was found something which may or may not have been a human shoulder-blade, and in another part of the ruins a long bone greatly gnawed and equally doubtful. Near the stile, going up towards Eyebright, there was found a glass eye, and many people discovered thereupon that Skinner owed much of his personal charm to such a possession. It stared out upon the world with that same inevitable effect of detachment, that same severe melancholy that had been the redemption of his else worldly countenance and about the ruins industrious research discovered the metal rings and charred coverings of two linen buttons three shanked buttons entire 
and one of that metallic sort which is used in the less conspicuous sutures of the human economy. Thero's remains had been accepted by persons in authority as conclusive of a destroyed and scattered Skinner, but for my own entire conviction, and in view of his distinctive idiosyncrasy, I must confess I should prefer fewer buttons and more bones. The glass eye, of course, has an air of extreme conviction, but if it really is Skinner's, and even Mrs. Skinner did not certainly know if that immobile eye of his was glass, something has changed it from a liquid brown to a serene and confident blue. That shoulder-blade is an extremely doubtful document, and I would like to put it side by side with the gnawed scapulae of a few of the commoner domestic animals before I admitted its humanity. And where were Skinner's boots, for example? Perverted and strange as a rat's appetite might be, is it conceivable that the same creatures that could leave a lamb only half-eaten would finish up Skinner, hair, bones, teeth, and boots? I have closely questioned as many as I could of those who knew Skinner at all intimately, and they one and all agree that they could not imagine anything eating him. He was the sort of man, as a retired seafaring person living in one of Mr. W. W. Jacobs' cottages at Dunton Green, told me, with the guarded significance of manner not uncommon in those parts, who would get washed up anyhow, and as regards the devouring element was fit to put a fire out. He considered that Skinner would be as safe on a raft as anywhere. The retired seafaring man added that he wished to say nothing whatever against Skinner. Facts were facts, and rather than have his clothes made by Skinner, the retired seafaring man remarked he would take his chance of being locked up. These observations certainly do not present Skinner in the light of an appetizing object. To be perfectly frank with the reader, I do not believe he ever went back to the experimental farm. I believe he hovered through long hesitations about the fields of the Hickley-Brow glib, and finally, when that squealing began, took the line of least residence out of his perplexities into the incognito. And in the incognito, whether of this or some other world unknown to us, he obstinately and quite indisputably has remained to this day. End of Book One Chapter Two of The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth Recording by Alex Hitalander, Davis, California, www.alexhitalander.com